Hello, and welcome to Caught in the Krauss Fire, a podcast hosted by me, Krauss, a master forestry student in Michigan's beautiful Upper Peninsula. This is a podcast focused on natural resources and other environmental topics around Michigan, the U.S., and even the world. I often bring in guest speakers to talk about these topics, most of which are from Michigan Technological University's College of Forest Resources and Environmental Science. Each episode, myself and my guests talk about a range of different topics from climate change, jobs in the natural resource field, lessons learned in classes and on the job, research topics, and today, Seth and I will chat about the Peace Corps and his life before beginning his master's in forestry, and we're going to talk about LGBT folks in the natural resource professions. You can see posts about each episode and updates on my Instagram, caught in the crossfire. Be sure to check it out. So in this episode, we will be continuing our series of conversations with a master of forestry students in the class of 2021. Seth is an MF from Seward, Nebraska. And similar to many of the students in his graduating class, Seth doesn't really have much background in the natural resource field. Um, He has a bachelor's degree in nutrition, exercise, and health science from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He was in the Peace Corps until the pandemic cut his time short, but his passion for the outdoors, especially skiing, led him to the UP where he found the forestry program at CFRES. So Seth, I want to thank you for being on the show and welcome. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about your background and maybe your path leading up to starting your master's and your hobbies and whatnot? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to be here. Um, So like you said, I'm from Seward, Nebraska, which is, um, it's just a little small town outside of Lincoln, the capital. Right after high school, I went to the University of Sioux Falls just for a year, mostly because I wanted to run track. It wasn't a great fit. I found a lot of friends um, that I've still kept in close contact with. But then after that, I went to South Dakota State for just one semester. I kind of thought I wanted to do mechanical engineering, um, which I, you know, I did one semester and realized that wasn't for me either. So I finally went back to Nebraska and went to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, found the Nutrition, Exercise, and Health Science program, um, and I was super interested in it. Um, you know, I've always been drawn to, um, you know, anything in that realm, um, and I've always liked science. So I decided to get my bachelor's in that. Um, I really didn't have a, a strong plan for what I wanted to do with my career um, with that degree. And so when I graduated, I was just kind of lost. Um, I, I had been working as a personal trainer, and I was also a wellness coordinator intern at a company in Lincoln. And with that experience, I, I really kind of realized that I didn't really want to work in inside the rest of my life. And I definitely wanted to find a, a change of pace. I really had no idea where I wanted to go, though. Um, so after that, I decided to join the Peace Corps. I initially applied to, to be a health education volunteer in Albania, just because I had read a little bit about the country and it sounded like, you know, had a really interesting history, you know, just an amazing culture. So I initially applied for Albania and they, I can't remember what happened. I think they were just full on volunteers, but they, they invited me to go to Moldova, which is a small Eastern European country sandwiched between Ukraine and Romania still as a health education volunteer. And, you know, I was like, you know, I, I still really enjoy health and I, I love teaching. So I said, yeah. And, uh, 
I went there in June of 2019. And then I was supposed to be there for 27 months, but it got cut short because of the pandemic. So I came back home in March where, um, you know, the Peace Corps had to deal with the worldwide evacuation of all volunteers from every country, which was just kind of a logistical nightmare. But yeah, we made it back and um, yeah, we only had a couple days notice that we were actually coming home though. Uh, so as soon as I got back, I was in a mad scramble to figure out what my next steps were gonna be. And I was looking around for different schools that had covered L scholarships, which are scholarships for returned Peace Corps volunteers. And I, I knew that I needed to have a change of pace. Um, I didn't want to get back into nutrition or exercise realm again. Um, and I stumbled on Michigan Tech's forestry program. And I was like, oh, forestry. I didn't even know that was a career, really. Like, I, I didn't know much about it at all. Um, so I looked into it, and I talked to uh, Blair Orr quite a bit, and I talked to Tara Ball. And they kind of helped me with the application process. And then here's where I am now. <laughs> So, kind of taking a leap. Were you like, I guess, I don't know, like, how do you, I knew, like, my whole life growing up that I wanted to do something outside. Mm-hmm. And I changed from wanting to be a conservation officer to forestry, which isn't really that far off. So, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like, how did you just suddenly be like, forestry? Um, gosh, good question, honestly. So I guess when I was in Moldova, I in the when I got to Peace Corps, you live with two different host families, mostly. Um, at least that's how it is in Moldova. Um, so for the first three months, uh, you live with your first host family while you're in training. And then the second one you or the second host family, you know, that's at your permanent site and that's where you spend the remainder of your time. Um, So when I was with my first host family, um, the oldest son, he was about my age, a little bit older. So about 26, 27, he had a little, not quite a company, but you know, he, he went out into this forest and just chopped down trees and sold the lumber um and it was i'm pretty sure it was illegal (laughs) um but they just they didn't have a whole lot of regulation regulations in moldova for um you know timber harvesting and conservation and anything like that and i talked to him about it a couple times and he was like yeah you know like people just go out into any of these forests and just take whatever they want i was like wow that's for one that's not very sustainable two that's um that's just a crazy concept so that initially got me interested in it and then when i got back to the states i was like you know that that really piqued my interest and i'd really be able to work outside so i just kind of took a leap and here i am (laughs) so what like, so you said you were a health education volunteer in mm-hmm. Nova. What was your, like, job? Um, my primary job was teaching health to middle schoolers. Okay, that's good. Um, so in our program, we got paired with two um, counterparts 
Um, it's like two Moldovan teachers in the school. And um, I personally, I taught grades two, three, five, and eight um, with two different teachers. And it was all in Romanian, which was kind of a challenge to learn, but it was it was a good experience. So that's my primary project. And then we had, you know, we they're pretty flexible um, with other projects that we like would like to accomplish. So I, I, you know, and still with the nutrition and exercise background, um, I started up a couple clubs at the school. Um, I think the most popular one was the American Football Club. Mm-hmm. Um, the kids there had never seen an American football, and they, I mean, they've seen a couple videos of uh, like American football games, but they're fascinated with it and they loved learning how to play with American football and how to throw it. That's cool. That's like. Yeah, I guess I'm, I still have, like, a really hard time understanding what the Peace Corps does. Like, how do they, how did they decide, okay, we need people to go to Moldova and teach education, health education in these classes? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. It's, well, for starters, it's different in every country. Like, they have, I think there's either five or six different sectors in the Peace Corps. Um, so there's health education, business, agriculture, and community and economic development. I think that's all of them. There might be one more, but the three that we had in Moldova was education, health, and um, community and economic development. Just because those are, you know, Moldova is a pretty agricultural country and they're pretty well off in that area. So they don't exactly need volunteers. to kind of promote that. But the primary need for health education in Moldova kind of stems from the fact that they don't have like a like a national health curriculum in the schools. Um, so we were there to kind of kind of promote that and teach like teach other teachers how to teach health because you know they just don't have a big background in it and also to kind of dispel some common health myths that they have in the country because there's quite a few you know there is anytime I I had my window open in my room my my host mom would barge in and yell oh my gosh the draft is gonna kill you like you need to have your window shut (laughs) so you know they think that uh if you drink cold water you'll get sick um just quite a few different health myths that we had to work on and so so is the the like country itself responsible for like requesting help in those areas or um i think it's a collaboration between the peace corps agency and countries i'm not entirely sure i'm i'm not an expert but um, if the country requested help in this area like, why wouldn't they just have people come and rather than just start teaching this this stuff, why wouldn't they have people come b- help them build a curriculum and then put that forth in some way, I guess? Good question. So they, they kind of had a, like a somewhat of a curriculum, but they didn't a lot of areas, like, like I was in, we were in rural vi- villages, mm-hmm. um, like 
far away from the big cities. Um, and I think that's a majority of where the need was. Rather than having, if the country can be like, okay, we recognize that we need help teaching students in schools about health education because we don't have a curriculum, why wouldn't they ask for help instead of volunteers, ask for help from other countries or other people to build that curriculum? That's a good question. Honestly, a lot of it could stem from the fact that it's just not a wealthy nation. Um, like it's it's one of, it might be the poorest country in Europe. I know it was towards the bottom of the list, um, but I think they do just, need, you know, the need for qualified volunteers is high, you know, and they don't let just any American apply for the Peace Corps and just be accepted. They have a you know, I, which is kind of what I always thought it was. Like, I thought you just signed up and they sent you abroad, um, but they have a pretty strict selection process. Like it was, it, I think it took six months for me to get accepted. So, yeah. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Like, I've never really even heard of Moldova before, so I wasn't sure mm-hmm. if it was like a wealthy country or, or what. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never even heard of it either when they offered my um, placement. Um, I was like, Moldova, like I've truly never even heard of this country. But it, yeah, it's an old uh, Soviet state. It gained its independence in 1992. Its primary language is Romanian. I was going to ask you, did you know Romanian before you went there? Nope. I didn't know any Romanian at all. So the first three months um, when we were with that first host family, um, we were placed in little villages. Like all the volunteers are kind of like in a cluster. It's kind of like this, the same as a county here in America, but they call them rayons, which like directly translates to regions. Um, so we're all in the same rayon, but we're just in different villages. And during those first three months, it's all centered around learning the language, learning about the culture and technical training. So pretty much, I think the first four or five hours of every weekday plus Saturdays, we were just doing language training um, for those three months. So it's really sink or swim. <laughs> I can't even. I can't even keep up with Duo Mobile. Yeah. Duolingo, that's what it's called. Duolingo. Like, I couldn't even tell you the last time I touched it. Yeah. But it it really is such a huge difference when you're in the country, your host family doesn't speak any English, um, and you're just speaking it all day, every day, you know, and you don't have a choice. So You just show up at this host family's house, and they're, like, speaking a completely different language, and you're just like, hi. Yep. Like... I, I want water. Like <laughs> that's how the first like, week was. Was just very simple sentences. Like, please, can I have water? Can I have food? Like, <laughs> gosh, that's I had to ask for food and water. But you know, just saying like I am hungry or yeah, that's wild. Yeah, it was it was quite the experience. You know, the very first time I got to my village, I stepped off the bus with my bags and uh so we all like everybody in my village like all the other volunteers we arrived at the same time and uh everybody had their host parents like at the bus stop waiting for them and the person waiting for me was this little girl and i was like 
uh hi like are you my host family (laughs) you speak speak any english i didn't speak any romanian she just had a sign with my name on it and i was like okay (laughs) and uh so we had to walk i think it was like mile and a half two miles in this hot june heat and carrying these massive bags that i brought had no idea where I was going, couldn't communicate with this girl that was at my host family's house. That was so funny. <laughs> it was a very interesting first experience. Gosh. I cannot even imagine. Like, I'm like, I'm dying right now. That, yeah. <laughs> I'm imagining you in that scenario and like knowing how anxious you get about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> how hilarious it would be. But at that point, you know, I was kind of, you know, I had my mind pretty open. I was like, you know, expect the unexpected, like don't have any expectations, like just kind of roll with the punches because that's what I heard you just needed to do in the Peace Corps is just have an open mind and just kind of accept what happens. So I was like, all right, this is just the first of many adventures. Here we go. (laughs) Yeah, great experience. Sweet. Okay, I definitely have a much better understanding of the Peace Corps now. I was trying to ask Thomas more about about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a long, long episode, so. Cool, um, so then I still wanna talk about this research, kind of research that you're doing right now with Advisor yep. and Katie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's see. So when I was initially talking to Blair um, last summer about you know getting into MTU, he asked if I was interested in any projects. And uh, he had this big long list and one kind of caught my eye and um, it was about stream temperatures in the Ottawa National Forest and um, like how it's affecting riparian species, um, stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, like that sounds really interesting. So I've kind of, last semester, I was just doing a lot of literature review of similar uh, research papers that have been published, trying to focus on stuff that's been done here in Michigan or in the UP, which is even better. And then just recently we got um, all of the temperature data from the last 10 years that the Ottawa National Forest has been recording from, I think like 35 streams or so. And so I've just been kind of going through that and pulling out the the total max and min and the average, as well as the July mean temperatures, the July max and the July min, and just kind of looking at those trends so far. And the overall goal is to kind of analyze the effectiveness of these different models that they've built. One is, I think, yeah, one is um, a riparian planting prioritization tool that I, I I don't know if the ONF created it or not. I know they have um, a partner at a university in Massachusetts that's kind of working on it as well. So I don't know where it originated from, but I'm kind of working to assess the effectiveness over it over the summer, eventually. Um, How we do that is still to be determined. But yeah, so that's kind of what I've been working on. It's a super interesting project, and I was very intimidated right off the bat, and I still still am. You know, I feel like I'm 
in over my head at some points, but Tara and Katie have been a great help and I, I really like working with them. So that's cool. So have you been to the Ottawa National Forest for any of the work? Not yet. This summer I'm planning on, so those streams that we talked about, I'll have to go visit each of those. They have the coordinates of, you know, where the temperature loggers were over the last 10 years. And so I'll go there and kind of follow this protocol that they have mapped out of, you know, looking at or taking different measurements like density of nearby trees and like bank width. And I'm not really in sure of all the details but you know stuff like that that would affect stream temperatures yeah that's cool that's like as you're saying this stuff i'm like man this is all kind of stuff that even as forestry students we've learned a lot about like yeah length width and stuff we learned with jim schmier mm-hmm. yeah i'm just i'm like imagining right now my first summer as you're talking about these streams my first summer as a wildland firefighter we like one of my first couple of days on the job we went to this camping site by a river and my my boss was teaching me like telling me about how like there's this huge open spot without many trees going over the the river like we didn't see any fish and he was like telling me about how like that stuff works like how the temperature affects the fish in there so it's pretty sweet yeah yeah that is cool. Yeah, that's that's another big part of it is um, they have a different model called FishViz, and um, I don't know a whole lot about it, to be honest. Um, that's another model that we'll be looking at and kind of how stream temperatures affect fish livelihoods, I guess. <laughs> and that's being like you'll learn the tiniest amount of FVS, Forest Vegetation Simulator, when you're at fall camp. Cool. Or summer camp or whatever you're doing. Yeah, fall camp. It's literally just Mickey. One class period going over this stuff and then you finish it on your own. It's not super difficult. Mm-hmm. But I imagine that fish was being like the same thing. Like you just put in the data that you want and then it gives you like a simulation of what it would look like. Yeah, cool. Who knows? That's what I imagined. Yeah. <laughs> That's really awesome. And it sounds like from the research stuff that you've done, like the reading the articles and everything, you've learned, you you have a lot of knowledge about that. Um, slowly but surely working towards that. But yeah, um, just kind of learning a little bit here and there. And yeah, just trying to get as much out of it as I can, you know, because second semester of the Master of Forestry program, it's still pretty intense but it's you know it's not quite as heavy as the first semester um so i have a little bit more free time to dedicate towards towards the research which is really nice um but this semester i feel like like last semester i felt like was like the outside labs and then also the inside like analyzing data and everything and then this Mm -hmm. semester as your second semester is more just like the inside lab stuff like the the excel stuff and and all that are you in these hydrology class right now yep i was like something that i've never really been interested in before and i like fishing and stuff but i would literally just like go out and fish and like 
that's it that was it like my dad would be like oh use this red colored bait today because it's you know fish season or whatever (laughs) i would just do it i didn't know anything about it but when Mm -hmm. that class i guess not even like fish wise or anything i just learned so much more about rivers and streams and lakes and like how how much forestry depends on those things but also how forestry and like how harvesting affects the streams and lakes and everything it's crazy how much they're interconnected and i loved that class because katie was so i don't know if the undergraduates get the same experience because they have a different professor for it but at the beginning of the semester i remember katie being like what are you interested in what do you want to learn about and yeah. wrote it down and gave it to her and we that was what we learned about in that class yeah. and I loved how each week you have those articles that you have to do a review on mm-hmm. okay this is the, the topic this week is precipitation pick an article any any article that you want and yep. up. that was so cool like we get to choose that what we're learning about yeah that is super nice how much freedom we get in that class yeah Cool. I feel like that's everything about where you are right now, like how you got to here. But let's talk about the future some. So what do you like have like a dream job or are you still kind of just figuring out? Has this class helped at all? Like the professionalism class? Honestly, it has helped a lot. Yeah. I had no idea that there are so many forestry jobs. We've had so many different speakers from a wide range of not only backgrounds, but current jobs, which is really nice to see. And I also really, we had one speaker, I can't remember what his name was. He had a bachelor's in philosophy, which is super cool that he now, you know, he got his master's of forestry and he's, you know, a current forester. So that gave me a lot of encouragement that, you know, I'm not the only one without a background in natural resources. But yeah, moving forward, I really don't have a dream job picked out. As long, and I'm not super picky, um, as long as I'm working outside and just kind of in some capacity working with a forest, I'll I'll be happy. I'd kind of like to end up in the Pacific Northwest, maybe Colorado, Montana, anywhere up in that area. So. Yeah, and you've been out that way, right? Because you skied and stuff. Yeah, I haven't been to Oregon or Washington or Northern California, um, but I've been to Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado several times. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like you said, mostly for skiing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, when I was in Colorado, we went to the Continental Divide. I forgot what it's called. But, anyways, when we were driving up this super sketchy, mountain with a road that was literally as wide as the fire engine and sheer cliffs on the other side. Mm -hmm. There was this one part where we overlooked where we could see a giant ski hill. Where were we close to? We were north of Colorado Springs. So not Boulder. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not, you know, I've been there a million times, but I'm still not super familiar with the geography of Colorado. So, and I will tell you, I was there over 4th of July when we got to the top of the Continental Divide place. There was tons of snow and like the ski hill was still covered in snow. Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. There's definitely, I have also actually been thinking about jobs in, in Colorado lately. Um, my best friend who works at the Center for Diversity and Inclusion, they are, are, have spent a lot of time in Colorado and definitely want to get back out there pretty, pretty soon, like in the near future. So that's kind of my chance. Like I could go out there with them and check it out. There's tons of, tons of jobs out that way for sure. That's what I've heard. Yeah, our last guest speaker mentioned that forestry jobs out west is super undersaturated, which is, you know, good news for me, I guess. But yeah, definitely. Yeah, could be good news for a lot of people. Yeah, I feel like less and less people now. And actually, we were talking about this. I just gave a, a prospective student a tour um, right before we had this meeting, and. Andrew and I were talking with this, these students about how it seems like there's less and less people now that want to actually go out in the field and they're doing more of the like, research side of stuff and they're doing more of the sustainable, sustainability side of stuff like this new sustainable, sustainable bioproducts major that we have that started last semester. Every time I think about it, I imagine how big it's going to get. Like I think that it's going to be huge in the next couple of years yeah. and those cool. people are not they don't that's the only program we have in our building without um they don't go to field camp because no. they're not really going to be out in the field doing stuff they're going to be inside utilizing wood products for for sustainability stuff but most of their jobs not going to be out in the field huh. what was the name of that program sustainable bioproducts i haven't heard about it yet you should look at um the the cfres website go to the sustainable bioproducts page there's a really really cool video it's 20 minutes long but mark rudnicki who teaches most of those classes and who kind of got the program started mm -hmm. in it and there's a, quite a few business owners in the up that are in it and it it's super focused on the up like our program is like we want to be sustainable in the UP. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's the companies that are in the UP that we're doing it with. It's, it's cool. And I, I didn't know anything about it. And Mark was like, Hey, I need you to create this webpage for me with all this information, but I didn't have any of the information. And then even when I had like the bullet points of it, I was like, I don't really understand this. And I looked into it more. And I was like, this is cool. This is cool stuff. Not my my forte, but mm -hmm. really cool stuff. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out and get back to you. Okay, so last thing I want to talk about that I'm super excited to talk about is gay shit. We are both members of the LGBT community, and I'm, like, so stoked that I met you and found that out. And, yeah, I don't know. So there is like no data about LGBT people in the natural resource field. There's quite a bit of data about other minorities, especially when it comes to nationality and, and race. And obviously there's data on like the amount of men and women in the field, but there's nothing on non-binary people or, or any LGBT stuff. So super hard 
when I was trying to create a presentation for the National SAF Conference this year about LGBT people in natural resources because there's no data on it. <laughs> That's kind of surprising that there's no data on it yet, especially, mm-hmm. you know, like in 2021, you'd think somebody would do something about it. But Right. Yeah. I mean, I have like researched and researched and researched and I go to all these different webinars that talk about diversity and forestry and Right now, I would say the main focus is definitely on race, which is good. Like, I'm not complaining at all about that because it definitely needs to be talked about right now. Um, but I really hope there is data in the future. And I'm super excited because I'm I'm on the diversity committee in CFRES. Mm-hmm. I started. I've only been to three meetings so far, but we are putting together a diversity plan for specifically CFRES and one of the first action items on the diversity plan is to get the data, like figure out how many people in our building identify as LGBT, identify as black, identify as Latino. Um, We don't, we don't have that. I mean, the the university has the stuff about race and everything, but um, there's nothing about being queer in that and even if there was like that it's constantly changing you know Mm -hmm. like if i would have gotten a survey at the beginning of my undergraduate degree i would have marked on there that i was straight and by three weeks into the semester i would have a completely different answer and Mm -hmm. by my sophomore year i would have marked that i was probably a lesbian i guess and i wouldn't have marked anything about being non-binary um, you know, so it's like ever changing. Yeah. Track of that stuff. So. You've been all over the spectrum. Mhm. Mhm. When when did you kind of figure out that you were not non-binary? Um, I met my wife my sophomore year, and she introduced me to all of her friends. And I would say like 70% of the people that she was friends with identify as non-binary or trans. So I guess just like hanging out with them and like seeing that they were being their authentic selves. Mm -hmm. um, I just kind of realized. And then actually I was getting my minor in wildland firefighting and I went on a trip for spring break doing prescribed burns down in Florida. And I remember doing a burn and at this, like, the fire was so hot and like, so scary. It was like my first time doing it. I remember smelling my hair burning, being like, I got to chop this off. If I'm going to do fire, I got to chop my hair. So mm-hmm. I did. And then after that, I was like, no more shopping in the women's section and just kind of figured it out. Yeah, cool. Good for you. That's, that's an important step to kind of figure out who you are. Like it's... Now and it takes a lot of courage too. So, so I wanted to ask you. I know that you don't really have much background in natural resources, but in any jobs or any like part of your schooling, have you felt like you've had any like negative experiences being a LG- member of the LGBT community? Um, gosh, honestly, I can't really think of any. Yeah, I, I really can't think of any. Um, I, and I mean, I'm not super, you know, like I, 
if somebody's going to ask me about it, like I won't deny it, but it's not something that I just like, you know, project. Mm -hmm. So I think that might also play a factor in lack of experiences with it. But um, yeah, so I, I can't really say that I have had negative experiences with it. So. Yeah, that's totally fair. I, I, w I would say that I'm pretty privileged in that I am, I'm white and I'm also more masculine presenting. So while I do, and while it's pretty obvious that I'm queer by my the way I dress, you know, the stereotypical stuff, sure. I feel like as a white masculine presenting person, I have a lot of privilege in that I don't get, I don't experience a lot of the same discrimination that someone who's more like feminine presenting might have. Um, so yeah, well, good. I'm glad that you have not had any bad experiences and I hope that it stays that way for you. I hope so too. <laughs> have you had any bad experiences? Um, I've had a, a couple, um, I, I, there's always like just doing like little little volunteer stuff I've had people ask me weird questions about my gender or about one of the biggest things as soon as you mention trans people whether I'm talking about myself or if I'm talking about my friend and I just I don't know sometimes I feel like it's important to throw in that they're trans depending on what I'm talking about sure. some people have literally asked me well does he have a penis or a vagina and I'm like you can't ask that. First of all, I don't know because I'm not, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Second of all, you don't know this person and you shouldn't care. And this affects you in no way whatsoever. So like, mm -hmm. what? I would say I definitely, I don't really see them as negative experiences, especially because I've never been like discriminated. I don't feel like I've personally been like discriminated against if people say something that I find offensive, usually they don't mean it or they just don't know. They don't understand that is what, that that could be offensive. So usually instead of seeing that as like a negative thing, I just see it as like a teaching opportunity. Exact same here. Yeah. Like if, if somebody were to say something that could be misconstrued as like offensive, like I, like I'd speak up and I'd say something like, hey, like... You know, like, that's not okay to say, and this is why, and, mm -hmm. you know, always, like, respectfully and just kind of making them aware that sticking oh. up, I guess. But. Yeah. And I do that with other minorities, too. Right. Something that a lot of people don't know is that one of the, an icebreaker people use is, what's your spirit animal? Like, you, you shouldn't really say spirit animal, and a lot of people don't know this because, usually like I didn't know it and I actually was called out before by my wife before she was my wife because I had been talking about it and I said that and she was like hey did you know that you actually shouldn't use the term spirit animal because native people that's really that's a really big value to them and I was like oh shit I did not know that thank you so much for telling me so now I do this the same thing you know just make sure that I'm like advocating for other minorities super important well thank you for telling me that because i had no idea either so i learned something a lot of people don't know that i also just recently learned that the word lame is also not acceptable hmm. i don't know where it, i didn't know where it came from i had no idea it had this like background meaning um but it's actually something that 
is a word derived to describe people that had, I think, pretty much just like physical disabilities. I did not know that until like literally last month. And I was like, Mm. I I actually say that word pretty often because I thought it was a more like relaxed way of telling someone that they're not cool or something or like something they did was not cool. Mm. But yeah, not not good. (laughs) Didn't know that either. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Yeah. So teaching moments, that's what I'm about and people will even my family has been like, I don't want you to get offended when I ask this question. And before they ask it, I say, I need you to think about that question. And then I want you to also think about, I probably won't get offended, but other people might get offended. Mm-hmm. Give it to me. What is it? And if yeah. they ask, and I feel like I shouldn't answer, then I just don't. Sure. I'm also really open about myself and so I might tell them about myself but then just be like again you should not ask someone who you just met on the street that question yeah here's why so teaching moments for sure yeah but relating that to forestry and stuff I I think that things are getting better I know the forest service has been really great about updating their policies when it comes to diversity the Mm -hmm. DNR just hired last year, I want to say 2019, a diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. Cool. Um, And I've had her actually come speak at our college before. So that was pretty cool. A lot of people making changes, for sure. I hope that I see a lot of a lot of big stuff happening in the future, especially with like SAF. Like they're they're pretty behind right now, but now they have the first black president of SAF and boots like he's like boots on the ground running and he's he's ready to go. So good for him. Yeah. I actually have six days to turn in a proposal so I can present at the National SAF conference in Sacramento this year and I'm gonna do I think I'm gonna do two proposals. I think I'm gonna see if I can present the same one I did this year about how to be an ally. And I think I'm gonna try to throw together a panel of of students specifically to talk about their experiences and stuff. That's super exciting. I'll have to get all updated on that. Yeah, for sure let you know. So yeah, and then I guess we'll probably have to start wrapping up pretty soon, but I wanted to share, if you don't mind, um, the the diversity committee, someone on the diversity committee um, who's a professor in our college took the initiative to kind of just start this series of essays. He had no idea where where it would go. It was like, let's just do this and see if we can get it published somewhere, um, either at Michigan Tech or in our building or wherever. And so he asked myself, and two others so he asked the three of us to write a diversity essay and in relation to natural resources when i was looking up stuff before talking to you about the podcast i was trying to gather more information on lgbt people and natural resources and i was reading this article and the article said this statement says, in forestry, we learn about how diversity in the forest helps produce the most resilient and productive ecosystems. I feel like the same is true for society. And that sentence is like a summary of the essay that I wrote. So that's a wonderful quote. I really like that. So 
if you don't mind, if I share, can I share that with you and like read it and? Yeah, of course. Okay. So when David reached out, the topic of the essays was, what does diversity mean to you? It's kind of long. He said it should be about like 600 words. I think I'm at like 1200 words. <laughs> I was like in the zone. I was like listening to spoken word poets when I was writing this and I had been, he asked me in December to write this. Every week I'd put it off on my list. I'd put it on the next list go unchecked one week and I'd move it to the next one and finally in February the stuff with the senate happened at, at tech and I just it just hit me and I just had this inspiration so cool I'm excited to hear it okay here goes what does diversity mean to you I choose to surround myself with forests every day so when this question was posed to me I chose to take a walk in the northern forests I call my home by doing this I found what the perfect version of diversity means to me when I step into the woods surrounding my home, I see birch trees collapsing next to cedars that stand tall. I see thimbleberries thriving in the dark understory while the oak above them begins to die of a disease it was never prepared for. I see a hawk circling an opening in the wintertime waiting for a small mammal to appear above the snow, the contrast of its dark little body against the blinding reflection of sun on every flake. Life is like these diverse forests and their value is internal. While some see it as a competition, the plants, animals, and trees see it as an opportunity. Growing is a struggle for some, but a struggle that's worthwhile most times. Even when the end result is a burled, gnarly-looking oak, the squirrels still use its acorns, the wood can still be used to create the brightest of fires, and its shape and strength still bring travelers a shelter in the storm. Many of us recall lessons about competition in forests from our ecology and civiculture classes. But in my lifetime and in the College of Forest Resources and Environmental Science, I recall learning about harmony, unanimity, and solidarity in the forests and in people. Growth in the forest and in life is not a competition to me. It's a work of art and unity. Each plant, animal, each insect, each leaf, each human has a purpose and opportunities. For people, the system is broken in the eyes of many, but in forests, the system, while having flaws, still has one goal that each piece works towards achieving. Some species grow tall to protect others. Those that are protected thrive just as much as those towering above. One day, the ones towering above will die after they've given everything they have to give, but their impact will resonate for centuries. The sapling that waited 50 years below for the light to finally shine through will never forget the protection that the oak gave during all of those winter storms, and it will thrive where the tree before it once stood. This new tree will clench the ground that formed around the last with its roots. It will reach spaces where the light finally comes through faster and more furiously than ever before. Its roots will intertwine with others below and reach soil that was once untouched by others. These roots break new ground every day. Martin Luther King Jr., W.E.B. Du Bois, Rachel Carston, Thurgood Marshall, Cesar Chavez, Jane Addams, Florence Kelly, Upton Sinclair, Bayard Rustin, Malcolm X. There's some examples of the first trees in the forest we call diversity. They're some of the tallest, most impressive trees in our forest. They too began as seeds that turned into saplings and soon became pines, maples, oaks, paper birches, cherries. They grew for so long, so tall and so strong that they moved the earth until even mountains began to move around them. They became the fruits and blossoms that insects and animals thrived on. 
Their skin was the bark that pests and nails could never go through, but bullets could. Their work allowed for the understory to grow and for the unnamed and unknown to not merely survive, but to thrive. Their protection yielded generations of impact seen and unseen. Kimberly Crenshaw, Gloria Steinheim, Laverne Cox, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, Betty Frieden, Van Jones, Jose Antonio Vargas, Kamala Harris, Naomi Osaka, Megan Rapinoe. These are just some of the next generation of mighty and tall trees that have sprouted from the seeds those before planted so purposefully. They grew through windstorms, lumberjacks, drought, pavement, and sheltered innumerable plants, animals, and young saplings as they grew. The most destructive forest fires could not stop the whole of this forest, even a decades-long slow burn that resulted in a four-year inferno. Fires such as these seek to destroy the hard work of the forest, seek to reduce it to unlivable ash. However, fires such as this only serve to blaze new trails and create new ground for thousands more to grow. There are noble fires as well. Native people use techniques like this doing prescribed burns for hundreds of years to help their sacred lands flourish. Fire designed to intentionally change the ecosystem. Thousands have sprouted from MLK's flames, designed to do the hard work of making space. Du Bois, Rustin, and Malcolm created blazes that allowed the serotonous cones of trees to get exactly what they finally needed to burst, allowing their seeds to become thirsty, full, fire-adapted jack pine. A bee that carried pollen from Crenshaw's flower days before the fire landed on universities everywhere. Race, class, gender, and intersectionality were just a few particles of her pollen that touched so many flowers after the fire that half the country did not know what to do with her fruit. The other half of the country indulged in it. Some profited and some gave the fruit to those who were nearly starving. Those who shared and ate her fruit are now stronger than ever. Those who chose their seven course meals instead, I think are still starved. Almost done. <laughs> those who enter the forest to observe the trees above them and hike through the wilderness around them learn this. Jack pine is no less valuable to the warbler than the app blossom is to the bee. The size of the trunk does not matter to the scurrying squirrel. The crook in the maple is a perfect place for the robin to nest. The fork in the oak makes two boards for a home instead of one for an unoccupied mansion. The cedar that is fat is also as inherently beautiful as the skinniest of birch. The color of the flower might attract the butterfly, but the hues of the trunks camouflage the deer. A fungus introduced to this chestnut helps them overcome life-threatening blight and on and on and on. Forests represent a perfect world of diversity. While competition exists, it does not come from a place of selfishness centered in the heart of the tree. The things foresters like myself call competition is no contest at all. It is a version of diversity, equity, and inclusion, a version of unity, solidarity, and togetherness. When we look up, we see branches and leaves that line up like pieces of a puzzle. Below our feet, we imagine roots intertwining, sharing the nutrients below. When we peel back the bark of a log on the forest floor, we conceptualize the mycorrhizae extending its thin strings to other species of living organisms as far as we can see, giving what the dead log holds to those who need it more to survive. No crooked trunk, no fat stump, no color flower, no skinny branch, no thorny bush or sly fox is less valued in its ecosystem to the species next to it. The entire forest does not cease to exist because of a variation in a single cell of a spruce. The things surrounding these beings grow and adapt. If one being is struggling, the others find a way to make up for it. The main goal of the forest 
to live the most successful life it can live over generations and generations, to live in solidarity, unity, and harmony for the greater good. The goal of diversity, to live the most successful life we can live for generations and generations, to live a life of solidarity, unity, and harmony for the greater good. So when asked, what does diversity mean to me? I struggled to answer for a moment until I stepped into the forest and looked around. Good job. That's, uh, that was wonderfully written. It's a lot. I was so inspired when I wrote it. And I just, I don't know, like I imagined, as I was writing that, I was like imagining people in society, like, mm-hmm. and like, you know, we see these flaws in trees when we're you know if it if it forks in the middle we're like oh man could have been a straight bowl we could have had one super great veneer log from it but then I'm like I'm get two pieces of wood from it you know mm-hmm. so yeah just stuff like that talking about the introducing a new disease to chestnut because it had chestnut blight but that disease cured it thinking about how humans do the same thing. This vaccination for COVID. I, I don't know, just... Nice. I'm glad you shared that. That was eye-opening. I was a... Yeah, good job. Sorry, I'm not super articulate, but... <laughs> so that is going to be on... Michigan Tech has this blog called Unscripted. So going to get published on there i think in the next couple months mm. exciting i'll be watching out for it yeah and so then all four of those first uh diversity essays will be published and then there's going to be another set of four and I'm, i think the goal is to get one diversity essay from cfres out once a month cool yeah and is that is that open to like undergraduate and graduate students to mm-hmm. submit yeah. So if you're interested in that at all, I can tie you in with David for sure. I'm super excited for that the survey to come out that we're talking about doing to figure out like how many people in our building identify as LGBT. Yeah. Really cool. I have absolutely no idea. What, you know, like what? Yeah. What if? Yeah. No idea. Like, no, I feel like a lot of people just don't really talk about it a lot. Like, I've had a few people that I would have, like, never expected. I just, like, start talking about stuff, like, make a joke about being queer, and then they're like, haha, yeah, I get it. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've been in that situation before, both ends. <laughs> it's always a nice surprise. Yeah. Do you have anything else? I'm... Um, Super happy that I learned more. Like, I understand now the Peace Corps and how it works. Yeah, and it's really cool to hear about the research you're going to be doing this summer. I'm stoked for you. Thanks. Yeah, hopefully I did an okay job with explaining Peace Corps. I still feel like I left out quite a few parts, but... (laughs) Good. Maybe uh, more to come in the future. Yeah, I'm sure you'll have plenty more volunteers on the show. Awesome. Well, did you have anything else that you wanted to share or ask me? Or, hmm. Gosh, really? Nothing that I can think of. Yeah. I... Oh, yes. Actually, I did want you to 
talk about your master's defense. Have you done that yet? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mentioned that, and I was like, I, I would love to hear about somebody's experience with that. Yeah. Um, it's pretty laid back. It sounds really intimidating at first. It does. <laughs> I kind of just wung it. Like, I, I just, I spent like a week before it kind of planning outline of what I wanted to talk about and I pretty much just went in like chronological order of my life I was like three I learned how to drive the lawnmower on my dad's lap you know and like kind of just went from there and talked about how how I got to to Seafres and talked about some of my like most valuable classes that I had talked about um fall camp and about jobs that I had had in the past and how they had affected my life and yeah and then my plans for the future honestly my whole powerpoint I'll send it to you Laura asked for it too my whole powerpoint was pretty much just photos like embarrassing pictures of me because my the committee that I I had chosen I mean you have Tara on it for sure but Mm -hmm. then choose two other people and so I chose Mickey because Mickey's like my friend and like he's Mm -hmm. chill and then I also had Audrey Mayer because she was I don't know I just I like really enjoyed her policy class a lot at the time Mm -hmm. when I asked her she was the interim VP of diversity for Michigan Tech Um, so that meant a lot to me and I, I guess I just felt like she she's a really amazing ally to LGBT folks and like knows so much about diversity and good to know. So yeah, so I just like picked people that I felt most comfortable with for sure. Audrey was like a little intimidating because she's big shot if you ask me. Like worked for the EPA and yeah. and all this stuff. I mean, at the time she was the VP for diversity. So when I emailed her asking her to be on my committee, I was like, it was like one of those nervous emails where I was like, I know that you're a busy person. It's totally fine if you say no. You can say no if you need to. Um, but she did it like literally right away. It was like, absolutely. Tell me a date and time. So. Yeah. And then they asked me questions about, um, one was kind of like a specific scenario scenario of what the ecosystem looks like what would you how would you manage it and I of course said something to do with fire because I love fire and I I know like I've had so many experiences where I see what fire does to a landscape that was my thing and I was like was I right and he was like yeah sounds good to me (laughs) so yeah um and otherwise it was just kind of like plans for the future yeah stuff like that cool good to know it's nothing to really be nervous about like well i'm already nervous about it so <laughs> i'll send it to you my own powerpoint can check it out. Yeah, that sounds great all right well thanks so much for for joining me you are the last student uh for the podcast this semester but i still have to interview mickey and and then we'll be done with the series so yeah. sounds good
Well, thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. I, you know, I learned a lot and had a good time chatting about everything. So. Sweet. Well, have a good one. And uh, to the listeners, thanks for getting caught in the crossfire with me and Seth.